This is the Education Gadfly Show. Probably not as good at basketball. We've got special guest Tucker Finn in the studio this week. All around fantastic, actually. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Alyssa Schwank of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me in welcoming my co-host, the LeBron James of Ed Reform, Brandon Wright. Always happy to be called LeBron James. I feel like you planted that one for me because you know I don't get the sports reference. Well, it's the last day of the NBA season, and LeBron James is going to the playoffs like he always does, probably go to the finals, and he opened a school in Akron. That's very exciting. Like and helped the, the LeBron James Family Foundation worked with the school district there to open a school, sort of extending a program that he's done outside of schools for individual kids for a long time called something like I Promise. Yeah, I mean, besides that terrible moving to Miami special from several years ago at this point, like between his involvement in Ohio and his like budding acting career, like I'm... He seems like an all-around fantastic guy. I mean, he seems like a wonderful human being. Good guy. And another good guy that we've got joining us, though probably not as good at basketball, we've got special guest Checker Finn in the studio this week. All-around fantastic, actually. (laughs) Uh, uh, What's more important than the final day of the NBA today is that yesterday was the final day of the Maryland legislative session, and they're gone for nine months. (laughs) Front page news. Yeah. um, And may they stay gone. And as a vice president of the Maryland State Board, I know um, you've been dealing with them pretty closely. But we're going to get into that during Ed Reform Update. And we're back with the Ed Reform Update. And we're going to talk about state legislatures and state boards and, of course, ESSA plans today because last week, several states submitted their first plans to the Department of Education for what accountability is going to look like under ESSA. Nine Um, and D.C. And Checker, you, after years of working at the federal level and in Congress and at kind of the national level, um, really rolled up your sleeves and got involved in the ESSA accountability plan creation process this time around. Sucked in might be a better word, (laughs) but uh, yeah. Well, because the Maryland State Board has spent basically a Ever since I've been on it, mm-hmm. developing, I mean, that, which started around the time ESSA got enacted, uh, beginning to talk about it and then talking about it and then continuing to talk about uh, how Maryland would deal with ESSA, which, of course, devolves a lot more authority for K-12 education mm-hmm. to the states than we were accustomed to doing before. And uh, the reason it's relevant to the legislature is that the legislature in Maryland, in one of the few things it did that um, our Governor Hogan disagreed with it about and tried to veto but got overridden, uh, was it put some real bounds around the state's ESSA plan. I'm not aware of any other state where the legislature has done anything like that. Um, And the bounds that it put around our ESSA plan, of course, were bounds that we on the board and the governor, too, uh, thought were pretty appalling and seriously harmful to the interests Mm -hmm. of children in Maryland. Mm -hmm. So the state board walked me through the process a little, Mm -hmm. proposed a plan to the legislature, legislator. No, 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 no. The The state plan um, has been monitored by legislative representatives all along, Mm -hmm. but also umpty zillion other stakeholders around Mm -hmm. the state. Federal law says that the state draft plan must be submitted to the governor for review before submitting to the feds. Mm -hmm. Um, We weren't at the governor's submission stage yet. Uh, We were still in the developing stage along with the umpty zillion stakeholder groups and the staff, of course, the Maryland State Department of Education, which did most of the heavy lifting. And uh, the issue was that 
that representatives of the Maryland State Teachers Association, the teachers union, basically were listening in on our public state board meetings and listening to what we were thinking of doing, even though nothing was finalized. And they didn't like some of the things we were talking about, and they persuaded their friends in the legislature to forbid them by taking legislative action mm-hmm. to, again, limit what could be in the state plan before the state plan was even finished being drafted. Any wow. good examples of specific well, the, policies? Yeah, a couple. Um, I think um, three are worth mentioning. Uh, one is that they forbade the use of A to F grading for schools in the mm-hmm. state of Maryland. Just A to F or any kind of summative annual? Well, letter grading. grades. Letter mm-hmm. grades. There will, they, they dictated a kind of complex mathematical summative grade. That is to say percentiles. There may be other ways to interpret those for the public, but uh, and we'll certainly look into that, but uh, letter grades for sure are off limits. I don't know whether something like DC's um, five-star system is off limits or not, frankly. Mm -hmm. So the letter grades would be one example. A second example is pretty severe curbs on what actions the state can take with respect to really low-performing, persistently Mm low-performing schools. Basically, they get left to the districts that allowed them to become low-performing in the first place to try to fix. So they just don't do much of the state level on school improvement? Very little that the state itself can do. It's largely the districts are in charge of even their lowest performing schools year after year after year. How much autonomy do the districts have? Like, Can they do things like close a school and replace it with a charter school, create new charter schools in place of bad schools, or do they have, are they sort of stuck with maybe less innovative or less interesting, um, more classic options like like counseling and PD and things like that? district could do charter conversions if it wanted to, but Maryland districts have been historically loath to go anywhere near mm-hmm. charters. So there's only a few Maryland districts that have even allowed outside groups to uh, create charters. I'm not aware of any situations where the district, there may be, but I'm not aware of any where the district itself has taken the initiative to convert a district school into a charter school. Frankly, it's almost not worth becoming a charter school in Maryland because the constraints on the charter schools in Maryland under the nation's <laughs> worst charter school law um, are so severe that you don't don't get a whole lot of autonomy to run your charter school differently. Mm-hmm. The third big difference is that the federal law says there that the, the state plans for accountability should have sort of two categories of indicators when you're looking at school performance. One is academic and the other is basically school quality, which mostly has to do with inputs and climate and things like Chronic that. Chronic absenteeism yeah. is a popular one. And teacher satisfaction. Mm-hmm. The federal law says that the academic side must be, quote, much greater in influence than the school quality side. Mm -hmm. What is the definition of much greater? The direction the state board was heading in Maryland was 70-30 and 80-20 as the Mm -hmm. ratio. That feels weighty. A lot of other states or most other states that have submitted are in that range or or 90-10. Right. Oh, that's much, much greater. The bill that the legislators almost enacted was 51-49. I have seen a state or two like that, and that does not obviously reasonably fit under the definition of the federal law like there's no arguing that that two percentage points more is much greater i mean that's, that's uh, though it so, remains to be seen whether silly. the uh, trump and devos administration will reject anything right. it does. not clear it does, but it anyway after a whole lot of pushing and shoving and arguing and uh, testifying by board president andy smerick and myself and pushback mm-hmm. from the governor's office etc 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 and some reform groups too what finally came out is 6535, okay. which is not optimal, but it's not as lopsided as 5149. It's almost twice we'll as see. much weight. We will try to live with it unless we decide in some way to defy it. <laughs> Checker Finn's motto. 
So, Brandon, I know you've been looking at a lot of the state plans, and I think the tension that Checker really talked about, about, you know, what is much greater um, is something that a lot of states are probably rationalizing with. I've seen what goes into this non-academic indicators is kind of a huge question, too. I know some states have included physical fitness as a non-academic indicator to show schools are focusing on the whole child. And it's part of this kind of, I would say, backlash against, you know, the accountability systems that were produced under NCLB. Like with what testing emphasis. With this huge emphasis yeah. on testing. Um, what have you been seeing in the plans that have been coming out? I mean, certainly some states have some sort of more obscure or sort of interesting mm-hmm. non-academic indicators. But when they do, they tend to account for such a small percentage mm-hmm. of the grade that to me, my gut is that they're just assuaging some interest group who wanted that there. Like it's it's not going to affect grades. I don't see why schools would really pay attention to it mm-hmm. compared to all the other things. Um, mm-hmm. When there's a state with a large percentage uh, of their annual grades um, that are comprised of um, non-academic indicators, they tend to be bigger things like chronic absenteeism or teacher satisfaction. Well, the fashionable term these days is um, is school culture or uh School satisfaction, and uh, that depends on surveys. Right, and I think that the school climate is an even better term for it. In fact, I think there may be a whole new career line emerging of educational meteorologists whose job it is to uh, (laughs) job it is to study and predict school climate. School climate predictors (laughs) Mm -hmm. that would kind of be fun. I'm just gonna say. Well, you have a future career. Who knows? (laughs) Whole lifetime ahead of me. So one of the things, too, that, uh, Checker, you've kind of touched upon is, you know, um, ESSA was kind of designed with this idea of, like, giving states more flexibility Mm -hmm. so that there would be less test-based accountability Mm -hmm. and this, like, focus on testing. Um, But that's kind of tricky to balance flexibility with accountability. Are states getting this balance right? Well, it depends, of course, where you sit. Um, I'm I'm feeling like uh, living in my own irony, uh, having been an advocate. (laughs) Having been an advocate of devolution from the sort of federal point of view mm-hmm. and now living with the consequences of devolution in a state where the teachers union is by far the most powerful force around. Mm. Be careful what you wish for. Exactly. Right. You've you've talked about this at least sort of in person a few times about how, um, how states ought to have and now do have more autonomy. But because they haven't had autonomy in such a long time, there will probably be a lag and we're seeing that between um, having autonomy and sort of exercising it in a wide variety of interesting ways. Part of it is the Stockholm Syndrome, the <laughs> inability of animals once the cage door is open to get out of the cage because they're so used to being in the cage. So yep. they, continue <laughs> to, uh, they continue to behave the way they did in the cage. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other is that some of the things that states would like to do, they don't yet know how to do. How do you measure school climate? Mm-hmm. Even even uh, much admired Massachusetts, I glanced at their plan the other day under, under student growth. Um, it basically says, we're going to use this, but we don't know how yet. Yeah, I think they had a plan that their goals aren't going to be set until they start with their new tests. And their measurement of student gain, growth mm-hmm. and growth measures, they haven't decided what they're going to use mm-hmm. yet. Yeah, there there are a ton of states with sort of placeholders or footnotes to their plan saying this is just a temporary short-term indicator. We are compiling information over the next three years and we plan to probably consider these four things. So the point here isn't exactly unwillingness to do something different. It's more like um, uncertainty how. Or waiting for the evidence, which I think we would all say is a pretty good thing to do. Makes sense. Though it also leaves these things in a kind of nebulous 
condition and it leaves schools uh, worrying that they're going to be judged by one set of criteria next year and a different mm-hmm. set of criteria two years after that and as, yeah. as, as so forth. And mm-hmm. certainly given, you know, seven years of changes in standards and testing and, oh, wait, now we're going back. Too much is in flux. Exactly. From and a school cer- standpoint. And not great for teachers. So I guess the uh, verdict is wait and see on a lot of accounts. New plans are released in September and we'll see what students are doing. Uh, from what we've seen so far, and there are you know 17 plans that have been submitted or probably mm-hmm. will be by May 3rd. It's a pretty mixed bag. And I would say more of them than not leave a lot to be desired. I'm not yet quite that gloomy. Uh, <laughs> Justice Brandeis referred to the states as laboratories of democracy. They may also turn out to be laboratories of educational innovation. It has been so long since they've really had that opportunity. And uh, so many of the things that are t- worth trying to innovate on are so ill-developed that, yeah, it's wait and see, but it's not yet be be sad. Yeah. And on that optimistic note, <laughs> uh, thank you we'll, for the sunny. Not yet we'll, be sad. That's we'll my optimism. Not yet be sad. <laughs> All right, and next up, everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. And we're back with Amber's Research Minute. This week, the part of Amber will be played by David. Welcome to the show, David. Thank thank you for having me once again. (laughs) You excited to be Amber again? Uh, I'm always excited to be Amber. Yeah, you know, it's like, what is it? Freaky Friday is the... Is the uh, body switching the body movie? Swapping yeah, movie? yeah. You know, every get... every Tuesday is Freaky Tuesday during the research minute. You know, it's Wednesday, right? I was just informed of this fact. Yeah. Okay. Why don't we? St- we'll stick to the research. What you got for us this week? Well, I have a pretty cool study called "The Long Run Impacts of Same Race <laughs> Teachers" by Seth Gershenson, who is uh, Eeps fellow of uh, Fordham's, mm-hmm. our wonderful Eeps people, uh, and several other researchers uh, from so all over the U.S. Promising, so he's a promising young scholar. <laughs> yes. Yep. Yes. And basically, the study looks at the impact of assigning African American students to African American teachers, primarily using data from North Carolina, but also data from the Tennessee Star Experiment, which is pretty cool. And, and 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 the results are exciting. Basically, they find that assigning a black male student to at least one black teacher reduces the probability that he will drop out of elementary school. So the the study looks at grades three to five, uh, and it's looking at long-term impacts. But the effect is completely driven by the male students. There's no equivalent effect for female students. Um, And the effect they find is pretty large. So they show a seven percentage point reduction in the odds of dropping out, uh, which is equal to like 39%, which is obviously huge. And then what's pretty big. Yeah. And what makes the study particularly convincing or worth taking seriously is the fact that they are able to use lots of different statistical techniques, which I won't go into. I'll spare you. Thank you. Yeah. But then they're also able to sort of approximate some of the findings in Tennessee using different data, using essentially more or less random assignment, which remember this is the the star experiment that's famous for its class size implications, right? Uh, Students, yeah, were essentially... Students in smaller classes. Yeah. More attention. Yeah. And they were essentially assigned more or less randomly to those classes. Mm -hmm. So it's a completely different time period, a completely different state, uh, and a totally different statistical technique, and they find at least broadly similar results, which lends credibility to the finding. And then I think the other thing that is worth highlighting is that it seems like the effects are concentrated in the sort of the first 
teacher of the same race that you're that a kid is assigned to, right? So in other words, okay. there's not a lot of additional benefit that comes from having a second African American teacher uh, if you're an African American student um, or a third or a fourth, all of which is pretty interesting. That is really interesting. So were there any effects of the gender of the teacher? So for a black male student having was having a black female teacher or a black male teacher kind of the same effect or did one of them have a stronger impact? Yeah, it didn't seem to matter, which I found sort of interesting, right? Mm -hmm. Like it matters for the gender of the student, but not for the gender of the teacher, which isn't totally intuitive, but you know, I guess I buy it. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think it also has just sort of some interesting and potential implications for policy that Mm -hmm. need to be thought through. So like the, the sort of lowest cost, easy one is, well, okay, maybe we can do sort of a thoughtful job of matching teachers to students, right? In, under limited sort of conditions where it's possible mm-hmm. um, to, you know, to make sure that uh, African-American male students have, you know, role models or mm-hmm. maybe it's teachers who believe in them. We don't really know why this happens, mm-hmm. right? So, so and, nothing about like the expectations of students or the teacher quality or anything like that. It's just yeah, at the correlation. Well, it's causal, but causal? we don't okay. know what the cause is, okay. right? We don't know. We don't know what the pathway is so that you can imagine multiple potential pathways, higher mm-hmm. expectations, right? Maybe it's just the case that African-American teachers believe in those kids, right? Or see themselves in them, or mm-hmm. maybe it's a role model effect, something like that. So, look, obviously, this is sort of dicey territory to talk about, but it's important, so we should talk about it. All right, yeah. Very interesting, I would say. The relationship and the potential policy implications, as you said, for both teacher assignment and student assignment and school integration and the efforts that a lot of states are you know, thinking through and districts thinking through. I know in D.C., for instance, we have the Empowering Males of Color initiative that really focuses on keeping young males of color in high school in part by having an all-boys high school that they can attend. That's a very focused curriculum for their needs. Yeah, you know, I have to say I came away from the study thinking that there's definitely something there, if nothing Mm -hmm. else, when it comes to the gender of the Mm -hmm. student. And that is worth taking seriously, I think. That doesn't necessarily have to be the implication, but it's certainly something that's worth talking about. Yeah, very cool. Well, I think that's all the time we have for Amber's Research Minute this week. Thank you for being Amber, David. (laughs) Always a pleasure. All right. And that's all the time we have for the show as well. Till next time. I'm Brandon Wright. And I'm Alyssa Schwing for the Thomas B. Fordham Institute signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.